Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Section 1 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 1. Theodore Roosevelt. December 3, 1901. Part 1. To the Senate and House of Representatives. The Congress assembles this year under the shadow of a great calamity. On the 6th of September, President McKinley was shot by an anarchist while attending the Pan-American Exposition at Buffalo, and died in that city on the 14th of that month. Of the last seven elected presidents, he is the third who has been murdered, and the bare recital of this fact is sufficient to justify grave alarm among all loyal American citizens. Moreover, the circumstances of this, the third assassination of an American president, have a peculiarly sinister significance. Both President Lincoln and President Garfield were killed by assassins of types unfortunately not uncommon in history, President Lincoln falling a victim to the terrible passions aroused by four years of civil war, and President Garfield to the revengeful vanity of a disappointed office-seeker. President McKinley was killed by an utterly depraved criminal belonging to that body of criminals who object to all governments, good and bad alike, who are against any form of popular liberty if it is guaranteed by even the most just and liberal laws, and who are as hostile to the upright exponent of a free people's sober will as to the tyrannical and irresponsible despot. It is not too much to say that at the time of President McKinley's death, he was the most widely loved man in all the United States, while we have never had any public man of his position who has been so wholly free from the bitter animosities incident to public life. His political opponents were the first to bear the heartiest and most generous tribute to the broad kindliness of nature, the sweetness and gentleness of character, which so endeared him to his close associates. To a standard of lofty integrity in public life, he united the tender affections and home virtues which are all important in the make-up of national character. A gallant soldier in the great war for the Union, he also shone as an example to all our people because of his conduct in the most sacred and intimate of home relations. There could be no personal hatred of him, for he never acted with aught but consideration for the welfare of others. No one could fail to respect him who knew him in public or private life. The defenders of those murderous criminals who seek to excuse their criminality by asserting that it is exercised for political ends, inveigh against wealth and irresponsible power. But for this assassination, even this base apology cannot be urged. President McKinley was a man of moderate means, a man whose stock sprang from the sturdy tillers of the soil who had himself belonged among the wage-workers, who had entered the army as a private soldier, 
wealth was not struck at when the president was assassinated but the honest toil which is content with moderate gains after a lifetime of unremitting labor largely in the service of the public still less was power struck at in the sense that power is irresponsible or centered in the hands of any one individual the blow was not aimed at tyranny or wealth it was aimed at one of the strongest champions the wage worker has ever had and at one of the most faithful representatives of the system of public rights and representative government who has ever risen to public office president mckinley fulfilled that political office for which the entire people vote and no people not even lincoln himself was ever more earnestly anxious to represent the well-thought-out wishes of the people his one anxiety in every crisis was to keep in closest touch with the people to find out what they thought and to endeavor to give expression to their thought after having endeavored to guide that thought aright he had just been re-elected to the presidency because the majority of our citizens the majority of our farmers and wage workers believed that he had faithfully upheld their interests for four years they felt themselves in close and intimate touch with him they felt that he represented so well and so honorably all their ideals and aspirations that they wished him to continue for another four years to represent them and this was the man at whom the assassin struck that there might be nothing lacking to complete the judas-like infamy of his act he took advantage of an occasion when the president was meeting the people generally and advancing as if to take the hand outstretched to him in kindly and brotherly fellowship he turned the noble and generous confidence of the victim into an opportunity to strike the fatal blow there is no baser deed in all the annals of crime the shock the grief of the country are bitter in the minds of all who saw the dark days while the president yet hovered between life and death at last the light was stilled in the kindly eyes and the breath went from the lips that even in mortal agony uttered no word save of forgiveness to his murder of love for his friends and of unfaltering trust in the will of the most high such a death crowning the glory of such a life leaves us with infinite sorrow but with such pride in what he had accomplished and in his own personal character that we feel the blow not as struck at him but as struck at the nation we mourn a good and great president who is dead but while we mourn we are lifted up by the splendid achievements of his life and the grand heroism with which he met his death when we turn from the man to the nation the harm done is so great as to excite our gravest apprehensions and to demand our wisest and most resolute action this criminal was a professed anarchist inflamed by the teachings of professed anarchists and probably also by the reckless utterances of those who on the stump and in the public press appealed to the dark and evil spirits of malice and greed envy and sullen hatred the wind is sowed by the men who preach such doctrines and they cannot escape their share of responsibility for the whirlwind that is reaped this applies alike to the deliberate demagogue to the exploiter of sensationalism and to the crude and foolish visionary who for whatever reason apologizes for crime or excites aimless discontent the blow was aimed not at this president but at all presidents at every symbol of government president mckinley was as emphatically the embodiment of the popular will of the nation expressed through the forms of law as a new england town meeting is in similar fashion the embodiment of the law-abiding purpose and practice of the people of the town 
on no conceivable theory could the murder of the president be accepted as due to protest against inequalities in the social order save as the murder of all the freemen engaged in a town meeting could be accepted as a protest against that social inequality which puts a malefactor in jail anarchy is no more an expression of social discontent than picking pockets or wife-beating the anarchist and especially the anarchist in the united states is merely one type of criminal more dangerous than any other because he represents the same depravity in a greater degree the man who advocates anarchy directly or indirectly in any shape or fashion or the man who apologizes for anarchists and their deeds makes himself morally accessory to murder before the fact the anarchist is a criminal whose perverted instincts lead him to prefer confusion and chaos to the most beneficent form of social order his protest of concern for workingmen is outrageous in its impudent falsity for if the political institutions of this country do not afford opportunity to every honest and intelligent son of toil then the door of hope is forever closed against him the anarchist is everywhere not merely the enemy of system and of progress but the deadly foe of liberty if ever anarchy is triumphant its triumph will last but for one red moment to be succeeded for ages by the gloomy night of despotism for the anarchist himself whether he preaches or practices his doctrines we need not have one particle more concern than for any ordinary murderer he is not the victim of social or political injustice there are no wrongs to remedy in his case the cause of his criminality is to be found in his own evil passions and in the evil conduct of those who urge him on not in any failure by others or by the state to do justice to him or his he is a malefactor and nothing else he is in no sense in no shape or way a product of social conditions save as a highwayman is produced by the fact that an unarmed man happens to have a purse it is a travesty upon the great and holy names of liberty and freedom to permit them to be invoked in such a cause no man or body of men preaching anarchistic doctrines should be allowed at large any more than if preaching the murder of some specified private individual anarchistic speeches writings and meetings are essentially seditious and treasonable i earnestly recommend to the congress that in the exercise of its wise discretion it should take into consideration the coming to this country of anarchists or persons professing principles hostile to all government and justify the murder of those placed in authority such individuals as those who are not long gathered in open meeting to glorify the murder of king humbert of italy perpetrate a crime and the law should ensure their rigorous punishment they and those like them should be kept out of this country and if found here they should be promptly deported to the country whence they came and far-reaching provision should be made for the punishment of those who stay no matter calls more urgently for the wisest thought of the congress the federal courts should be given jurisdiction over any man who kills or attempts to kill the president or any man who by the constitution or by law is in line of secession for the presidency while the punishment for an unsuccessful attempt should be proportioned to the enormity of the offence against our institutions anarchy is a crime against the whole human race and all mankind should band against the anarchist his crime should be made an offence against the law of nations like piracy 
and that form of man-stealing known as the slave trade for it is of far blacker infamy than either it should be so declared by treaties among all civilized powers such treaties would give to the federal government the power of dealing with the crime a grim commentary upon the folly of the anarchist position was afforded by the attitude of the law toward this very criminal who had just taken the life of the president the people would have torn him limb from limb if it had not been that the law he defied was at once invoked in his behalf so far from his deed being committed on behalf of the people against the government the government was obliged at once to exert its full police power to save him from instant death at the hands of the people moreover his deed worked not the slightest dislocation in our governmental system and the danger of a recurrence of such deeds no matter how great it might grow would work only in the direction of strengthening and giving harshness to the forces of order no man will ever be restrained from becoming president by any fear as to his personal safety if the risk to the president's life became great it would mean that the office would more and more come to be filled by men of a spirit who would make them resolute and merciless in dealing with every friend of disorder this great country will not fall into anarchy and if anarchists should ever become a serious menace to its institutions they would not merely be stamped out but would involve in their own ruin every active or passive sympathizer with their doctrines the american people are slow to wrath but when their wrath is once kindled it burns like a consuming flame during the last five years business confidence has been restored and the nation is to be congratulated because of its present abounding prosperity such prosperity can never be created by law alone although it is easy enough to destroy it by mischievous laws if the hand of the lord is heavy upon any country if flood or drought comes human wisdom is powerless to avert the calamity moreover no law can guard us against the consequences of our own folly the men who are idle or credulous the men who seek gains not by genuine work with head or hand but by gambling in a new form are always a source of menace not only to themselves but to others if the business world loses its head it loses what legislation cannot supply fundamentally the welfare of each citizen and therefore the welfare of the aggregate of citizens which makes the nation must rest upon individual thrift and energy resolution and intelligence nothing can take the place of this individual capacity but wise legislation and honest and intelligent administration can give it the fullest scope the largest opportunity to work to good effect the tremendous and highly complex industrial development which went on with ever accelerated rapidity during the latter half of the nineteenth century brings us face to face at the beginning of the twentieth with very serious social problems the old laws and the old customs which had almost the binding force of law were once quite sufficient to regulate the accumulation and distribution of wealth since the industrial changes which have so enormously increased the productive power of mankind they are no longer sufficient the growth of cities has gone on beyond comparison faster than the growth of the country and the upbuilding of the great industrial centers has meant a startling increase not merely in the aggregate of wealth but in the number of very large individual and especially of very large corporate fortunes the creation of these great corporate fortunes has not been due to the tariff nor to any other governmental action 
but to natural causes in the business world operating in other countries as they operate in our own the process has aroused much antagonism a great part of which is wholly without warrant it is not true that as the rich have grown richer the poor have grown poorer on the contrary never before has the average man the wage worker the farmer the small trader been so well off in this country and at the present time there have been abuses connected with the accumulation of wealth yet it remains true that a fortune accumulated in legitimate business can be accumulated by the person specially benefited only on condition of conferring immense incidental benefits upon others successful enterprise of the type which benefits all mankind can only exist if the conditions are such as to offer great prizes as the rewards of success the captains of industry who have driven the railway systems across this continent who have built up our commerce who have developed our manufactures have on the whole done great good to our people without them the material development of which we are so justly proud could never have taken place moreover we should recognize the immense importance of this material development of leaving as unhampered as is compatible with the public good the strong and forceful men upon whom the success of business operations inevitably rests the slightest study of business conditions will satisfy anyone capable of forming a judgment that the personal equation is the most important factor in a business operation that the business ability of the man at the head of any business concern big or little is usually the factor which fixes the gulf between striking success and hopeless failure an additional reason for caution in dealing with corporations is to be found in the international commercial conditions of today the same business conditions which have produced the great aggregations of corporate and individual wealth have made them very potent factors in international commercial competition business concerns which have the largest means at their disposal and are managed by the ablest men are naturally those which take the lead in the strife for commercial supremacy among the nations of the world america has only just begun to assume that commanding position in the international business world which we believe will more and more be hers it is of the utmost importance that this position be not jeoparded especially at a time when the overflowing abundance of our natural resources and the skill business energy and mechanical aptitude of our people make foreign markets essential under such conditions it would be most unwise to cramp or to fetter the youthful strength of our nation moreover it cannot too often be pointed out that to strike with ignorant violence at the interests of one set of men almost inevitably endangers the interests of all the fundamental rule in our national life the rule which underlies all others is that on the whole and in the long run we shall go up or down together there are exceptions and in times of prosperity some will prosper far more and in times of adversity some will suffer far more than others but speaking generally a period of good times means that all share more or less in them and in a period of hard times all feel the stress to a greater or less degree it surely ought not to be necessary to enter into any proof of this statement the memory of the lean years which began in eighteen ninety three is still vivid and we can contrast them with the conditions in this very year which is now closing disaster to great business enterprises can never have its effects limited to the men at the top it spreads throughout 
and while it is bad for everybody it is worst for those farthest down the capitalist may be shorn of his luxuries but the wage worker may be deprived of even bare necessities the mechanism of modern business is so delicate that extreme care must be taken not to interfere with it in a spirit of rashness or ignorance many of those who have made it their vocation to denounce the great industrial combinations which are popularly although with technical inaccuracy known as trusts appeal especially to hatred and fear these are precisely the two emotions particularly when combined with ignorance which unfit men for the exercise of cool and steady judgment in facing new industrial conditions the whole history of the world shows that legislation will generally be both unwise and ineffective unless undertaken after calm inquiry and with sober self-restraint much of the legislation directed at the trusts would have been exceedingly mischievous had it not also been entirely ineffective in accordance with a well-known sociological law the ignorant or reckless agitator has been the really effective friend of the evils which he has been nominally opposing in dealing with business interests for the government to undertake by crude and ill-considered legislation to do what may turn out to be bad would be to incur the risk of such far-reaching national disaster that it would be preferable to undertake nothing at all the men who demand the impossible or the undesirable serve as the allies of the forces with which they are nominally at war for they hamper those who would endeavor to find out in rational fashion what the wrongs really are and to what extent and to what manner it is practicable to apply remedies all this is true and yet it is also true that there are real and grave evils one of the chief being over capitalization because of its many baleful consequences and a resolute and practical effort must be made to correct these evils there is a widespread conviction in the minds of the american people that the great corporations known as trusts are uncertain of their features and tendencies hurtful to the general welfare this springs from no spirit of envy or uncharitableness nor lack of pride in the great industrial achievements that have placed this country at the head of the nation struggling for commercial supremacy it does not rest upon a lack of intelligent appreciation of the necessity of meeting changing and changed conditions of trade with new methods nor upon ignorance of the fact that combination of capital in the effort to accomplish great things is necessary when the world's progress demands that great things be done it is based upon sincere conviction that combination and concentration should be not prohibited but supervised and within reasonable limits controlled and in my judgment this conviction is right it is no limitation upon property rights or freedom of contract to require that when men receive from government the privilege of doing business under corporate form which frees them from individual responsibility and enables them to call into their enterprises the capital of the public they shall do so upon absolutely truthful representations as to the value of the property in which the capital is to be invested corporations engaged in interstate commerce should be regulated if they are found to exercise a license working to the public injury it should be as much the aim of those who seek for social betterment to rid the business world of crimes of cunning as to rid the entire body politic of crimes of violence great corporations exist because they are created and safeguarded by our institutions 
and it is therefore our right and our duty to see that they work in harmony with these institutions the first essential in determining how to deal with the great industrial combinations is knowledge of the facts publicity in the interest of the public the government should have the right to inspect and examine the workings of the great corporations engaged in interstate business publicity is the only sure remedy which we can now invoke what further remedies are needed in the way of governmental regulation or taxation can only be determined after publicity has been obtained by process of law and in the course of administration the first requisite is knowledge full and complete knowledge which may be made public to the world artificial bodies such as corporations and joint stock or other associations depending upon any statutory law for their existence or privileges should be subject to proper governmental supervision and full and accurate information as to their operations should be made public regularly at reasonable intervals the large corporations commonly called trusts though organized in one state always do business in many states often doing very little business in the state where they are incorporated there is utter lack of uniformity in the state laws about them and as no state has any exclusive interest in or power over their acts it has in practice proved impossible to get adequate regulation through state action therefore in the interest of the whole people the nation should without interfering with the power of the states and the matter itself also assume power of supervision and regulation over all corporations doing an interstate business this is especially true where the corporation derives a portion of its wealth from the existence of some monopolistic element or tendency in its business there would be no hardship in such supervision banks are subject to it and in their case it is now accepted as a simple matter of course indeed it is probable that supervision of corporations by the national government need not go so far as is now the case with the supervision exercised over them by so conservative a state as massachusetts in order to produce excellent results when the constitution was adopted at the end of the eighteenth century no human wisdom could foretell the sweeping changes alike in industrial and political conditions which were to take place by the beginning of the twentieth century at that time it was accepted as a matter of course that the several states were the proper authorities to regulate so far as was then necessary the comparatively insignificant and strictly localized corporate bodies of the day the conditions are now wholly different and wholly different action is called for i believe that a law can be framed which will enable the national government to exercise control along the lines above indicated profiting by the experience gained through the passage and administration of the interstate commerce act if however the judgment of the congress is that it lacks the constitutional power to pass such an act then a constitutional amendment should be submitted to confer the power end of section one Section 2 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1901. Part 2. 
there should be created a cabinet officer to be known as secretary of commerce and industries as provided in the bill introduced at the last session of the congress it should be his province to deal with commerce in its broadest sense including among many other things whatever concerns labor and all matters affecting the great business corporations in our merchant marine the course proposed is one phase of what should be a comprehensive and far-reaching scheme of constructive statesmanship for the purpose of broadening our markets securing our business interests on a safe basis and making firm our new position in the international industrial world while scrupulously safeguarding the rights of wage worker and capitalist of investor and private citizen so as to secure equity as between man and man in this republic with the sole exception of the farming interest no one matter is of such vital moment to our whole people as the welfare of the wage workers if the farmer and the wage worker are well off it is absolutely certain that all others will be well off too it is therefore a matter for hearty congratulation that on the whole wages are higher today in the united states than ever before in our history and far higher than in any other country the standard of living is also higher than ever before every effort of legislator and administrator should be bent to secure the permanency of this condition of things and its improvement wherever possible not only must our labor be protected by the tariff but it should also be protected so far as it is possible from the presence in this country of any laborers brought over by contract or of those who coming freely yet represent a standard of living so depressed that they can undersell our men in the labor market and drag them to a lower level i regard it as necessary with this end in view to re-enact immediately the law excluding chinese laborers and to strengthen it wherever necessary in order to make its enforcement entirely effective the national government should demand the highest quality of service from its employees and in return it should be a good employer if possible legislation should be passed in connection with the interstate commerce law which will render effective the efforts of different states to do away with the competition of convict contract labor in the open labor market so far as practicable under the conditions of government work provision should be made to render the enforcement of the eight-hour day easy and certain in all industries carried on directly or indirectly for the united states government women and children should be protected from excessive hours of labor from night work and from work under unsanitary conditions the government should provide in its contracts that all work should be done under fair conditions and in addition to setting a high standard should uphold it by proper inspection extending if necessary to the subcontractors the government should forbid all night work for women and children as well as excessive overtime for the district of columbia good factory law should be passed and as a possible indirect aid to such laws provision should be made to turn the inhabited alleys the existence of which is a reproach to our capital city into minor streets where the inhabitants can live under conditions favorable to health and morals american wage earners work with their heads as well as their hands moreover they take a keen pride in what they are doing so that independent of the reward they wish to turn out a perfect job this is the great secret of our success in competition with the labor of foreign countries the most vital problem with which this country and for that matter the whole civilized world has to deal 
is the problem which has for one side the betterment of social conditions moral and physical in large cities and for another side the effort to deal with that tangle of far-reaching questions which we group together when we speak of labor the chief factor in the success of each man wage worker farmer and capitalist alike must ever be the sum total of his individual qualities and abilities second only to this comes the power of acting in combination or association with others very great good has been and will be accomplished by associations or unions of wage workers when managed with forethought when they combine insistence upon their own rights with law-abiding respect for the rights of others the display of these qualities in such bodies is a duty to the nation no less than the associations themselves finally there must also in many cases be action by the government in order to safeguard the rights and interests of all under our constitution there is much more scope for such action by the state and the municipality than by the nation but on points such as those touched on above the national government can act when all is said and done the rule of brotherhood remains as the indispensable prerequisite to success in the kind of national life for which we strive each man must work for himself and unless he so works no outside help can avail him but each man must remember also that he is indeed his brother's keeper and that while no man who refuses to walk can be carried with advantage to himself or anyone else yet that each at times stumbles or halts that each at times needs to have the helping hand outstretched to him to be permanently effective aid must always take the form of helping a man to help himself and we can all best help ourselves by joining together in the work that is of common interest to all our present immigration laws are unsatisfactory we need every honest and efficient immigrant fitted to become an american citizen every immigrant who comes here to stay who brings here a strong body a stout heart a good head and a resolute purpose to do his duty well in every way and to bring up his children as law-abiding and god-fearing members of the community but there should be a comprehensive law enacted with the object of working a threefold improvement over our present system first we should aim to exclude absolutely not only all persons who are known to be believers in anarchistic principles or members of anarchistic societies but also all persons who are of a low moral tendency or of unsavory reputation this means that we should require a more thorough system of inspection abroad and a more rigid system of examination at our immigration ports the former being especially necessary the second object of a proper immigration law ought to be to secure by a careful and not merely perfunctory educational test some intelligent capacity to appreciate american institutions and act sanely as american citizens this would not keep out all anarchists for many of them belong to the intelligent criminal class but it would do what is also in point that is tend to decrease the sum of ignorance so potent in producing the envy suspicion malignant passion and hatred of order out of which anarchistic sentiment inevitably springs finally all persons should be excluded who are below a certain standard of economic fitness to enter our industrial field as competitors with american labor there should be proper proof of personal capacity to earn an american living and enough money to ensure a decent start under american conditions 
this would stop the influx of cheap labor and the resulting competition which gives rise to so much of bitterness in american industrial life and it would dry up the springs of the pestilential social conditions in our great cities where anarchistic organizations have their greatest possibility of growth both the educational and economic tests in a wise immigration law should be designed to elevate the general body politic and social a very close supervision should be exercised over the steamship companies which mainly bring over the immigrants and they should be held to a strict accountability for any infraction of the law there is general acquiescence in our present tariff system as a national policy the first requisite to our prosperity is the continuity and stability of this economic policy nothing could be more unwise than to disturb the business interests of the country by any general tariff change at this time doubt apprehension uncertainty are exactly what we most wish to avoid in the interest of our commercial and material well-being our experience in the past has shown that sweeping revisions of the tariff are apt to produce conditions closely approaching panic in the business world yet it is not only possible but eminently desirable to combine with the stability of our economic system a supplementary system of reciprocal benefit and obligation with other nations such reciprocity is an incident and result of the firm establishment and preservation of our present economic policy it was specially provided for in the present tariff law reciprocity must be treated as the handmaiden of protection our first duty is to see that the protection granted by the tariff in every case where it is needed is maintained and that reciprocity be sought for so far as it can safely be done without injury to our home industries just how far this is must be determined according to the individual case remembering always that every application of our tariff policy to meet our shifting national needs must be conditioned upon the cardinal fact that the duties must never be reduced below the point that will cover the difference between the labor cost here and abroad the well-being of the wage worker is a prime consideration of our entire policy of economic legislation subject to this proviso of the proper protection necessary to our industrial well-being at home the principle of reciprocity must command our hearty support the phenomenal growth of our export trade emphasizes the urgency of the need for wider markets and for a liberal policy in dealing with foreign nations whatever is merely petty and vexatious in the way of trade restrictions should be avoided the customers to whom we dispose of our surplus products in the long run directly or indirectly purchase those surplus products by giving us something in return their ability to purchase our products should as far as possible be secured by so arranging our tariff as to enable us to take from them those products which we can use without harm to our own industries and labor or the use of which will be of market benefit to us it is most important that we should maintain the high level of our present prosperity we have now reached the point in the development of our interests where we are not only able to supply our own markets but to produce a constantly growing surplus for which we must find markets abroad to secure these markets we can utilize existing duties in any case where they are no longer needed for the purpose of protection or in any case where the article is not produced here and the duty is no longer necessary for revenue as giving us something to offer in exchange for what we ask 
the cordial relations with other nations which are so desirable will naturally be promoted by the course thus required by our own interests the natural line of development for a policy of reciprocity will be in connection with those of our productions which no longer require all of the support once needed to establish them upon a sound basis and with those others which either because of natural or of economic causes we are beyond the reach of successful competition i ask the attention of the senate to the reciprocity treaties laid before it by my predecessor the condition of the american merchant marine is such as to call for immediate remedial action by the congress it is discreditable to us as a nation that our merchant marine should be utterly insignificant in comparison to that of other nations which we overtop in other forms of business we should not longer submit to conditions under which only a trifling portion of our great commerce is carried in our own ships to remedy this state of things would not merely serve to build up our shipping interests but it would also result in benefit to all who are interested in the permanent establishment of a wider market for american products and would provide an auxiliary force for the navy ships work for their own countries just as railroads work for their terminal points shipping lines if established to the principal countries with which we have dealings would be a political as well as commercial benefit from every standpoint it is unwise for the united states to continue to rely upon the ships of competing nations for the distribution of our goods it should be made advantageous to carry american goods in american-built ships at present american shipping is under certain great disadvantages when put in competition with the shipping of foreign countries many of the fast foreign steamships at a speed of fourteen knots or above are subsidized and all our ships sailing vessels and steamers alike cargo carriers of slow speed and mail carriers of high speed have to meet the fact that the original cost of building american ships is greater than is the case abroad that the wages paid american officers and seamen are very much higher than those paid the officers and seamen of foreign competing countries and that the standard of living on our ships is far superior to the standard of living on the ships of our commercial rivals our government should take such action as will remedy these inequalities the american merchant marine should be restored to the ocean the act of march fourteenth nineteen hundred intended unequivocally to establish gold as the standard money and to maintain at a parity therewith all forms of money medium in use with us has been shown to be timely and judicious the price of our government bonds in the world's market when compared with the price of similar obligations issued by other nations is a flattering tribute to our public credit this condition it is evidently desirable to maintain in many respects the national banking law furnishes sufficient liberty for the proper exercise of the banking function but there seems to be need of better safeguards against the deranging influence of commercial crises and financial panics moreover the currency of the country should be made responsive to the demands of our domestic trade and commerce the collections from duties on imports and internal taxes continue to exceed the ordinary expenditures of the government thanks mainly to the reduced army expenditures the utmost care should be taken not to reduce the revenue so that there will be any possibility of a deficit but after providing against any such contingency 
means should be adopted which will bring the revenues more nearly within the limit of our actual needs in his report to the congress the secretary of the treasury considers all these questions at length and i ask your attention to the report and recommendations i call special attention to the need of strict economy in expenditures the fact that our national needs forbid us to be niggardly in providing whatever is actually necessary to our well-being should make us doubly careful to husband our national resources as each of us husbands his private resources by scrupulous avoidance of anything like wasteful or reckless expenditure only by avoidance of spending money on what is needless or unjustifiable can we legitimately keep our income to the point required to meet our needs that are genuine in nineteen eighty seven a measure was enacted for the regulation of interstate railways commonly known as the interstate commerce act the cardinal provisions of that act were that railway rates should be just and reasonable and that all shippers localities and commodities should be accorded equal treatment a commission was created and endowed with what were supposed to be the necessary powers to execute the provisions of this act that law was largely an experiment experience has shown the wisdom of its purposes but has also shown possibly that some of its requirements are wrong certainly that the means devised for the enforcement of its provisions are defective those who complain of the management of the railways allege that established rates are not maintained that rebates and similar devices are habitually resorted to that these preferences are usually in favor of the larger shipper that they drive out of business the smaller competitor that while many rates are too low many others are excessive and that gross preferences are made affecting both localities and commodities upon the other hand the railways assert that the law by its very terms tends to produce many of these illegal practices by depriving carriers of that right of concerted action which they claim is necessary to establish and maintain non-discriminating rates the act should be amended the railway is a public servant its rates should be just to and open to all shippers alike the government should see to it that within its jurisdiction this is so and should provide a speedy inexpensive and effective remedy to that end at the same time it must not be forgotten that our railways are the arteries through which the commercial life-blood of this nation flows nothing could be more foolish than the enactment of legislation which would unnecessarily interfere with the development and operation of these commercial agencies the subject is one of great importance and calls for the earnest attention of the congress the department of agriculture during the past fifteen years has steadily broadened its work on economic lines and has accomplished results of real value in upbuilding domestic and foreign trade it has gone into new fields until it is now in touch with all sections of our country and with two of the island groups that have lately come under our jurisdiction whose people must look to agriculture as a livelihood it is searching the world for grains grasses fruits and vegetables specially fitted for introduction into localities in the several states and territories where they may add materially to our resources by scientific attention to soil survey and possible new crops to breeding of new varieties of plants to experimental shipments to animal industry and applied chemistry very practical aid has been given our farming and stock growing interests the products of the farm have taken an unprecedented place in our export trade 
during the year that has just closed public opinion throughout the united states has moved steadily toward a just appreciation of the value of forests whether planted or of natural growth the great part played by them in the creation and maintenance of the national wealth is now more fully realized than ever before wise forest production does not mean the withdrawal of forest resources whether of wood water or grass from contributing their full share to the welfare of the people but on the contrary it gives the assurance of larger and more certain supplies the fundamental idea of forestry is the perpetuation of forests by use forest protection is not an end of itself it is a means to increase and sustain the resources of our country and the industries which depend upon them the preservation of our forests is an imperative business necessity we have come to see clearly that whatever destroys the forest except to make way for agriculture threatens our well-being the practical usefulness of the national forest reserves to the mining grazing irrigation and other interests of the regions in which the reserves lie has led to a widespread demand by the people of the west for their protection and extension the forest reserves will inevitably be of still greater use in the future than in the past additions should be made to them whenever practicable and their usefulness should be increased by a thoroughly business-like management at present the protection of the forest reserves rests with the general land office the mapping and description of their timber with the united states geological survey and the preparation of plants for their conservative use with the bureau of forestry which is also charged with the general advancement of practical forestry in the united states these various functions should be united in the bureau of forestry to which they properly belong the present diffusion of responsibility is bad from every standpoint it prevents the effective cooperation between the government and the men who utilize the resource of the reserves without which the interests of both must suffer the scientific bureaus generally should be put under the department of agriculture the president should have by law the power of transferring lands for use as forest reserves to the department of agriculture he already has such power in the case of lands needed by the departments of war and navy the wise administration of the forest reserves will not be less helpful to the interests which depend on water than to those which depend on wood and grass the water supply itself depends upon the forest in arid region it is water not land which measures production the western half of the united states would sustain a population greater than that of our whole country today if the waters that now run to waste were saved and used for irrigation the forest and water problems are perhaps the most vital internal questions of the united states certain of the forest reserves should also be made preserves for the wild forest creatures all of the reserves should be better protected from fires many of them need special protection because of the great injury done by livestock above all by sheep the increase in deer elk and other animals in the yellowstone park shows what may be expected when other mountain forests are properly protected by law and properly guarded some of these areas have been so denuded of surface vegetation by overgrazing that the ground breeding birds including grouse and quail and many mammals including deer have been exterminated or driven away at the same time the water storing capacity of the surface has been decreased or destroyed thus promoting floods in times of rain and diminishing the flow of streams between rains 
in cases where natural conditions have been restored for a few years vegetation has again carpeted the ground birds and deer are coming back and hundreds of persons especially from the immediate neighborhood come each summer to enjoy the privilege of camping some at least of the forest reserves should afford perpetual protection to the native fauna and flora safe havens of refuge to our rapidly diminishing wild animals of the larger kinds and free camping grounds for the ever-increasing numbers of men and women who have learned to find rest health and recreation in the splendid forests and flower-clad meadows of our mountains the forest reserves should be set apart forever for the use and benefit of our people as a whole and not sacrificed to the short-sighted greed of a few the forests are natural reserves by restraining the streams in flood and replenishing them in drought they make possible the use of waters otherwise wasted they prevent the soil from washing and so protect the storage reserves from filling up with silt forest conservation is therefore an essential condition of water conservation the forests alone cannot however fully regulate and conserve the waters of the arid region great storage works are necessary to equalize the flow of streams and to save the flood waters their construction has been conclusively shown to be an undertaking too vast for private effort nor can it be best accomplished by the individual states acting alone far-reaching interstate problems are involved and the resources of single states would often be inadequate it is properly a national function at least in some of its features it is as right for the national government to make the streams and rivers of the arid region useful by engineering works for water storage as to make useful the rivers and harbors of the human region by engineering works of another kind the storing of the floods and reservoirs at the headwaters of our rivers is but an enlargement of our present policy of river control under which levees are built on the lower reaches of the same streams the government should construct and maintain these reservoirs as it does other public works where their purpose is to regulate the flow of streams the water should be turned freely into the channels in the dry season to take the same course under the same laws as the natural flow end of section two